0: All right, so Pastor Jonathan is away. He's in Virginia on vacation, enjoying some time off. So I have the privilege of preaching for the fifth time, I think, at Cornerstone. And this sermon's going to be definitely different than most sermons we have here at Cornerstone, and definitely different than the sermons that I have delivered in the past. Because of the topic we're covering, there's definitely going to be more teaching, I think, than then preaching. And before we get started, why don't we pray, and then we'll dive into what we have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your scriptures. We thank you that you have provided them for us and to us. They are indeed a great gift from you. We should not take them for granted in any way. We should be looking at them, studying them, marveling at them. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me as you know that I am certainly um, a weak vessel uh, being used by you. I pray that you would use my voice to communicate your message to your people today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our statement of faith Articles of faith, I should say, is what we're preaching on this summer, and I am preaching on the first article. I'm going to read it to you. I don't think I was smart enough to put it on our first slide. We'll get to it later, but I want to start with it. Our article of faith says that we believe the entirety of the Bible is the Word of God, free from error in the original words, authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fully authoritative in all matters it addresses, incapable of being wrong and always accomplishing its purposes. I hope if any of those words were a little foreign to you or any of those thoughts were a little foreign to you that they won't be when you leave. I'm going to try to go through it point by point and explain why we included each of those things in our articles of faith, why it's important, and then hopefully wrap it up by telling you what that matters and why we should how we should respond to that. So everybody in the room has some kind of thought about the Bible. Everybody outside this room has a thought about the Bible. I mean, I think pretty much everybody in the United States knows what the Bible is, has heard of it, and they have some kind of opinion on it. You have to have an opinion. And I'm going to share with you a couple of opinions, hopefully. Okay, you guys can move it. And by the way, for the record, all the mistakes during worship were my fault. I wasn't supposed to lead worship this week, filling in. And all the mistakes happen here are going to be my fault too. But we have a great God who will be uh, merciful and not hold that against me. So what is your view of Scripture? This one says that the Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Maybe some of you feel that way. Maybe you think, Bible's too confusing, and I don't really want to dive into it, because if I understand it, well, then I'm going to be bound to try to live by it. If you can move to the next one. Charles Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Now, a lot of us are using our Bibles these days on our phone, our iPad, our computer. But do you have a Bible at home? Is it sitting on the shelf? Is the binding not even creased? Or is it falling apart? Does it have duct tape on it? Um, Do you know people like that? And would you agree with Spurgeon on that statement? Let's go to the next one. John Piper is someone that I I really look up to. Um, And his view on Scripture, one of them, he says, I've been a Christian all these years not because I've had the courage to hold to an embattled view of Scripture, but because I have been held happily captive by the beauty of God and His ways that I see through the Scriptures. Are you someone who loves the Scripture because it reveals to you more and more each time you read it, the person of Jesus Christ, the character of God? Is that something that you can't wait to get back into it, and that's why? Or is it something that you're not really sure why you would read it. And lastly, really famous quote from C.S. Lewis, which says, I believe in Christianity, or the scriptures, I would say, as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And if you haven't heard that one before, it really is a deep thought, the fact that you can see the sun, you know it exists, but without it, you wouldn't know anything else exists, because you wouldn't see anything. And, you know, his worldview was formed by scripture. Everything he sees in the world, he sees through the lens of scripture. So let's go to the next slide. What is it that we say about scripture? Cornerstone. Well, that's our article of faith that I read to you. That's what we say about scripture. That's the quote that we would put, you know, on the internet. If you search at Cornerstone, what we believe, you'll find that, you know, just like you find a quote from Piper or Kierkegaard or any of the other people that you, Spurgeon. So we need to be able to defend that. If we're belonging to this church if we're members of this church we need to affirm that we need to believe it so we need to understand it so let's try to do that on the following slide and going forward I'm going to highlight different parts that I want to talk about so it says we believe that the entirety of the Bible what is the entirety of the Bible so we need to know that the Bible project did a really good job of explaining that so I don't have to go too far into it but um you know the fact is people think well why do we have the bible we have well the Old Testament is 39 books for us, and it is the same as the 24 books of the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. You say, well, they have 24, we have 39. How can it be the same? Because they have some books in one that we have in two or more. And theirs is also ordered a little bit differently. I think 2 Chronicles is their last book. That's not our last book. So why, is, why do we have 39 books when they have 24? Why is it ordered differently? And the answer is because the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, it was ordered that way. And it broke the books out that way. And because the early church was mostly in the Greek world, that's what they were using. So that kind of became our format, even though the Hebrew Bible is a different format. You can rest assured that the content of those Bibles are the same, our Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. I would say that the Hebrew Bible is something that we can have really good confidence in. And I want to just prove that by a couple of points. One is that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, according to my research, 295 times, Okay, and cites it as scripture. But never once does it quote from you know, extra-biblical books or uh, modern-day stuff during that time. And describe it as scripture. Sure, we see Jude quote from Enoch and we see Paul um, use some popular stuff, but he doesn't ascribe to it the authority of scripture, and neither does Jude. So, 295 times we see that. The other thing that strikes me is that if you follow the New Testament, all you see Jesus arguing with the Jewish leaders about almost everything, you never see them arguing about the scriptures. I think they, they took the same view of what the scripture was at that point, the closed canon that was the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. So I think the Old Testament's a little clearer. How do we end up with the New Testament? The New Testament has 27 books. So that gives us 66, if you had 39, and 27. That's our closed canon. That's our Bible. As Protestants, as evangelicals, we don't have those extra biblical books that the Catholics have or some of the Eastern Orthodox religions have. Not that there's not some good stuff in those books, perhaps, but we don't see those as divinely inspired by God. We don't see those as scripture. So, how did the New Testament get its authority? I think we need to look at that so that we can see how these 27 books come to be. Well, it starts with Jesus, um, quite obviously. It starts with Jesus. As the Bible Project video showed us, he came on the scene, first prophet in a while. And he says, I'm going to carry this story forward. And he goes beyond that. He claims authority in many ways. So, excellent. You guys will just stay with me because this thing isn't working. So the writer of Hebrews says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God didn't just send another prophet, another Old Testament prophet to relay his message to his people. He sent his own son. And he sends him, and John, the beginning of the chapter uh, 1, verse 1, and then verse 14, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And picking up in 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So really, really, John's making it clear here that Jesus is the Word of God. He is here to continue that message from God that was started in the Old Testament. But as we know, Jesus didn't write the New Testament. He's quoted in it quite a bit, but he didn't write the New Testament. So how do these people that wrote the New Testament, where did they get their authority from? Well, Jesus really lays the groundwork letting people know there's going to be a book coming. There's going to be more writings, more scripture. And on the next slide, it says uh, in John 14, 25 and 26, this is Jesus speaking. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring, you, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is telling his followers that, yeah, I've taught you a lot and there's still more to teach you. but." I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. He is going to continue to teach you, and he's going to help you to remember everything that I taught you. I mean, you've got to imagine they spent a couple of years with Jesus learning every single day, um, probably like drinking from a fire hose, and there's only so much they can catch. And if you read through the New Testament, you see they screw up a lot. They make a lot of mistakes. Obviously, they weren't listening. There was a period of time when they didn't even know he was the Son of God, even though they were following him around. And... So he's going to send the Holy Spirit so that they can have divine inspiration. First Corinthians chapter 2, 12, and 13, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we might impart in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, The apostles claimed their authority from Jesus himself, and we're actually going to talk about that more later, um, because of the fact that they had the Holy Spirit speaking to them, bringing things to their remembrance, and um, helping them to understand spiritual truths that would otherwise be impossible to understand. So let's go to the next line. So we've got the entirety of the Bible, and... Then we say that it is free from error in the original words. OK, so there's two things that are really, free from error and original words. So I want to talk a little bit about original words first. And I think I've heard a lot of people say, what well, does it matter if it was free from error in the original words? How free from error is my NIV, or my King James, or my you know whatever version you're using, or your French Bible? And I think, well, does it matter that the original words were not in error, or does it matter that our new translations not in error? And I did a lot of thinking about that and some reading about it, and I definitely became convinced that it's the original words. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, think about playing the game telephone as a kid. Okay, You sit in a circle, and, you know, the New Testament, it was written down, but there was a lot of oral tradition going on. Um, think about that that the way we're going through those years and they're telling it think about that game of telephone the only way you can really know what the message was doesn't matter the accuracy of the one that just came to you necessarily you got to go back to the original words in order to compare it to see and if those are good and then you have a chance of having a good message at the end if those aren't good then you know you don't really have anything and the fact is that words matter the original words matter the context the uh, things that were going on at the time and words can be misunderstood so if we look at the next slide it talks about the fact that there was a misinterpretation in scripture john 21 21 through 23 when peter saw john he said to jesus lord what about this man jesus said to him if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So obviously in the early church, there was some thinking that John, the apostle John wasn't going to die because Jesus said so. Well, have any of you ever been misunderstood by somebody? And then later on, you're like, that's not what I said. And so in this case, John, uh, John's saying, wait a minute, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't say I was going to live until he came again. He never said that. What he said was, what does it matter to you if that's what I want to do? So the original words really matter. Um, John thought the words mattered. Jesus thought the words mattered. And I think that the apostles make clear that they think the words matter. On the next slide, we have a verse from Matthew where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to ab- not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. So he's talking about the Old Testament here. He's saying it matters. Every dot, every iota of that law, of that scripture matters. It's important. Words matter. And so we want to be careful obviously with our own words, but we want to be really careful when we have Scripture, when we're trying to hide it in our heart. Sometimes changing a word here or there can really change an inference or a meaning. We can read it and maybe misunderstand it. But, you know, Jesus cared about the words. I think Paul cared about the words, and Peter cared about the words. I think on the next slide I have a, a verse from Peter. It says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. So Peter's saying, and implying that Paul would feel the same way, that words are important. You can't twist them. You can't get your own meaning out of them. The original words, in their context from the original author, had a particular meaning. And that's the meaning we want to get to. Now, there's something really cool in this verse that I don't know if you caught, but it goes back to my other point about the authority of the New Testament writings. It says in the middle of there, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter is saying that Paul's letters are scripture. Because he's saying they're twisting Paul's letters as they do the other scriptures. I don't think that that language would have been used if... You know, Peter wasn't saying that these letters that Paul's written to these groups of Jesus followers throughout the area were not to be taken as scripture, just as important as the Old Testament. My last, I think my last point about words mattering, Paul in a lot of his letters wrote something along the lines of, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. See what large letters I'm using. It was important for Paul that his. Readers know it was a genuine letter. Because there were, there were some fake letters out there. And even though Paul used a scribe or a, um, someone to write the letters in a lot of cases, he would generally take a portion of the letter, usually the greeting, and he would write it in his own handwriting so that they could, they could look at it. They could authenticate it. They could say these words are from Paul. And therefore, Paul being an apostle and having that authority from Jesus, therefore, these letters are important and they are Scripture. So hopefully that leads you to think a little bit that that words matter. I think you already knew that because I think you know that your words matter when you talk to people. So we really want to get back to the original. Now, free from error. Okay, this is one that, you know, a lot of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, if you start talking about the Bible, you really believe everything in there is true? There's, There's no errors? Come on, that's not possible. You know, but we really do have reason to be confident. There are, again, according to my research, someone can tell me if I'm wrong, Terry can probably tell me if I'm wrong, 5,801 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now those are, are partials as well as completes, obviously, but that's a lot of manuscripts, a lot, a lot of manuscripts. The oldest partial manuscript is from about A.D. 130, and it's the book of John, which means it wasn't that long after he wrote it. You're talking, you know, 50, 60 years, something like that, depending on how you date the manuscript and date the book. But not a long time. And we have a complete manuscript, a really good one, that was found in Mount Sinai from AD 350. And so 5,801 manuscripts, and they're really old, close to when they were originally written. The average work of classical literature, you know, Greek literature from that era... The oldest manuscript is usually around 500 years after it was originally written, and there's somewhere between two and 20 copies of those. And when I say manuscript, I should define these words. That's like a handwritten copy. Okay, This is all way before the the printing press, before typewriters, computers. These are handwritten copies. Generally, obviously, the New Testament, um, a lot of the complete ones were all done in monasteries by monks. I mean, they were very careful in putting these together. But why is it important... Is it a good thing or a bad thing that we have 5,801 manuscripts? If you go to the next slide, there's a quote there uh, from F.F. Bruce. And he says, fortunately, if the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionally the means of correcting such errors, so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is not so large as might be feared. In truth, it is remarkably small. All right, that might have gone over a lot of your heads. It went over my head when I first read it. I had to read it again. But I'm going to give you an analogy. Let's say that somebody you know was speaking somewhere. And you couldn't make it, but you you really wanted to. And they're going to deliver an important message, an announcement. Uh, It wasn't going to be long, but it was going to be important. And so you wanted to find out what they said. Well, if you ask one person what they said, well, I guess you got some confidence that Hey, that's the only message I got. I'm going to go with it. But you really don't have a lot of reason to necessarily think it's right. That was the one person. That's what they heard. That's what they've reported back to you. Maybe it's a week after the event. Maybe it's three years after the event. How accurate are they going to be? I think if you ask two people and they tell you different things, well, now you're really, you have no idea. You got 50-50 shot at this one. Okay, five people, 10 people, 100 people. If you ask 100 people that were in the attendance, you're going to start to see a real bell curve develop. A few people that don't agree on either end, and a whole lot of people that are giving you roughly the same message in the middle. A 1,000 people, okay, 5,801 manuscripts. You start to really get a curve. So yeah, did the scribes make errors? Of course, they're human. But you can start to really see, okay, the, they kind of filter out to the, to the sides, and you get a whole lot of them that have the same thing there in the middle. And you can have a lot of confidence, just like you would if you were able to ask 15 of your friends that went to hear the speaker and 14 of them or 13 of them gave you roughly the same message you know which one's to go with so it's the same sort of thing um so you know I, I'm not going to belabor the point obviously you know entire um seminary classes are taught on each one of these subjects um uh, people probably go after hold degrees in these subjects you can um you can get sermon series on a lot of these subjects i'm going to leave it at that if you're interested um, I can certainly point you to some of the books I used in my research. Um, you know, There's lots of stuff out there to, to, to look at. But I think we have good reason to feel like the New Testament authors had authority and that we have a lot of records such that we can believe that what we have is indeed accurate. So let's go to the next one. And I'll try to pick up the pace a little so I get to the preaching part. <laughs> Authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Next slide, I have a couple of verses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. And Peter says in our sermon passage, 2 Peter, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the point is that Scripture itself says it was authored by the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them the Holy Spirit was coming to help them do this task. We see that um, Peter and Paul confirmed this throughout. And we see in the book of Acts all the power that the Holy Spirit brought on the early church and the early church leaders. So I'm not going to belabor the point, but... The reason why we can have confidence in their authority and in their error-free writing is not because they were good people, but because the Holy Spirit was carrying them along, as it says. It was basically giving them the words, giving them the writing. The next slide shows fully authoritative. So we think the Scripture is fully authoritative. What does that mean? It means that in everything it addresses, it is the authority. We don't need to look Somewhere else, We don't need to compare and contrast with today's thinking on the subject. We feel like the Bible's given us everything we need for that. The authority of the writers is something that I want to look at really quickly. Um, the foundation verse today... You can go to the next slide. The foundation verse today, I didn't choose that one by accident, since I had the privilege of planning. Um, it talks about that authority. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, so Jesus has the authority. We already talked about that. Jesus said earlier in Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass. Okay, he's he's telling you again, his words are going to be scripture. Jesus' authority was also noticed throughout the New Testament. Do you remember a lot of times it would say after Jesus taught somewhere and everyone was amazed at his teaching or the people were, you know, um, amazed at what he did. Jesus was able to speak with authority that they didn't even understand and as a young man. So the point is Jesus had that authority, and in, we see in the Great Commission, he commissions his followers to go off with his authority. Now let's talk about, go to the next slide. The word I've been using a lot is apostle. And I realize in the church a lot of people, I don't think have necessarily a proper understanding of apostle versus disciple. I think a lot of people think they're identical. I don't think they're identical. Anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple. Jesus started with twelve disciples, but he had many more. A lot of people joined in to follow Jesus. Those are disciples of Jesus. Follower means or disciple means follower or learner. Um, anyone who sits under a te- teacher can be a disciple of that teacher. Apostle means authorized representative. So if you've been sitting under a teacher and he says, "You, you're good to go out and teach my message. You have my permission. You have you have learned it." you know it. But in this case, it's even more than that. He says, not only have you learned it and know it, not only do I give you that, but I'm giving you my Holy Spirit to give you all the knowledge you need, to give you the wisdom you need, to bring to memory the things you need to bring to memory. So, you know, not all disciples are apostles, but all apostles are disciples. Maybe that helps a little bit. And we see that in Luke chapter 6, and this is a verse I think that I never noticed until I prepared this sermon. I never no- noticed this real distinction here in this verse. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, he being Jesus, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 who he named apostles. So, I mean, it shows you he had more than 12 disciples, and from that group of disciples, he chose 12 apostles. And we know, I'm not going to really talk about it today, but we know Paul was an apostle out of time, right? If we read in Acts, Jesus came and appeared before him, blinded him, and called him as an apostle to go to the Gentiles. So um, he's a little bit special from all the other apostles and obviously wrote a lot of the letters. Let's move on to the next slide, which highlights the next piece, incapable of being wrong. So that's a little bit different from the free from error, incapable of being wrong or infallible. Means that you know God's word is not—it's not possible for it to be wrong, and I'm just going to use a couple of scripture passages to um, show that point. Our sermon passage, Second Peter chapter one, starting in verse nineteen, it says, "We have the prophetic messages as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts." So he's saying we have a message that is completely reliable. It's not possible that it's going to be wrong. Okay, It doesn't matter if you're in the United States in 2017. It doesn't matter if you were listening to Peter in his day. It doesn't matter if you lived in Europe in the 800s. Scripture is still right in that time, in that place. It'll be right if Jesus doesn't come back a thousand years from now and we're sitting here, it'll still be right. And it doesn't matter what happens in the culture. The Bible is um, what's called... Supercultural; it doesn't belong to any one culture. It is over every culture, and it applies to every culture. And to me, that's what it means to be incapable of being wrong. There's nothing that can happen that will render it incorrect. There's not something that's going to happen in the future, like our scientific research from the the fifties that now doesn't look so good, or the charts they were making in the fourteen hundreds for maps that now don't look quite so accurate. That's not going to happen to the to the Bible. So. Moving on to the last piece of our article of faith: always accomplishing its purposes. And our text for that in our footnotes is from Isaiah 55:11. It's on the next slide. And this was Isaiah in a long passage, speaking for the Lord, saying, "Thus declares the Lord," um, saying, "You know just like rain falls on the earth and waters the earth. My word." He says, "My word goes out from my mouth, and it will not return to me empty, but will' accomplish what I desire." And achieve the purposes for which i sent it now we want to be careful it doesn't say it's going to accomplish the purposes that we want it to accomplish or that it's going to achieve the purpose for which we sent it so we can preach the word to people it may not it may not work okay this is god saying when when my word goes out and i have a purpose for it it will not be thwarted okay so we we believe in a bible that is free from error in its original text that it's incapable of being wrong the people who authored it had the authority to do so, given to them by God in the Old Testament, given to them by Jesus in the New Testament, authored under the uh, really the supervision of the Holy Spirit, and we believe that it is incapable of being wrong, fully authoritative, and that it will always accomplish, accomplish the purposes that God sets out for it. So can move to the next slide, and again, Cornerstone's view of Scripture. Let's read this together, if you will. We believe that the entirety of the Bible is the word of God, free from error in the original words, authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, fully authoritative in all matters it addresses, incapable of being wrong, and always accomplishing its purposes. Okay, so I believe that. Now what? You can go to the next slide. You already did. Excellent. So, now in the last few minutes, I'm going to try to say, okay, we've talked about this. Maybe you believed all those things before. Maybe you understood all those things before. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you understand some of them better now. Maybe you're still not sure if you believe it. And I've kind of gotten more interested in this, you know, through the development. So, if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it, too. Um, But if you believe this, now what? What should you be doing? Well, I thought of three things that you definitely should be doing. One is... Hiding God's word in your heart. Another one is the fact that, and these are different parts of speech and it bothers me too, um, right, right belief results in right living. I think if we can form the proper beliefs about things, it's going to change the way that we live. And I think it'll increase your view of Scripture and of God. So let me explain those a little bit since that's probably not good enough. So hiding God's word in your heart, the next one. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, that's really key, right? If we don't know God's word, okay, if you're not carrying your Bible around with you um, so that you can quickly try to figure out, and probably better off with your phone at this point, but quickly try to figure out, okay, I'm in this situation. What does God's word say about it? Boy, it's a lot more efficient if you already know it. If you've already read it if you're already familiar with it if you're reading through it on a daily basis if you're reading through the bible you know every year every couple of years getting from start to finish you're going to have a familiarity with it the same way you would if you've watched a movie several times um you know you have to know it because in that instance you need to know what does god's word say about this how should i react to this person how should i react in this situation and i think it really is key in keeping you from Sin. I think it's much easier to fall into sin if you're not even aware that what you're doing is wrong or it's not being drawn to mind. So, other ways it can keep you from sin. We see Jesus in the wilderness, 40 days. And Satan comes and tempts him. If you're familiar with the story. Each time Satan tempts him, Jesus responds with Scripture. You know, Scripture says that we're not going to be tempted beyond what we can bear and God will provide a way out. Oftentimes, one of the ways he provides out is by bringing Scripture to our mind that will remind us of what God actually has for us. And if you're not in the Scriptures, if you're not hiding it in your heart, if you're not reading it, it's not going to come to mind in that instance, and it's going to be difficult. And then the last one, the last reason to hide God's Word in your heart, I think for me, is it's a great encouragement. There are lots of times when I think I can't do this, And, you know, it could be any number of things, including, you know, leading worship and preaching. I can't do this. And, you know, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And there are countless other passages that are just really encouraging to God's followers or just the fact that we know no matter what happens in this life, we have hope for eternity. I mean, how encouraging is that? You have to hide these promises in your heart so that they come to you when you need them. So the next one, right belief equals right living. If you don't believe these things, if you don't have them there, if you don't read them, wrestle with them, study them, and determine that you believe them, they're not going to affect the way you live. So I happen to be a structural engineer. Uh, many of you know that. Probably a lot of you don't. And a couple of years ago, I visited the Willis Tower in Chicago. It used to be the Sears Tower. They've built a couple of glass boxes out the side of the building, on like the top floor that you can walk out into. And you can look down at the street and you can look sideways down the street. It's really cool. If you go, I suggest you do it. It's not super expensive. It's a lot of fun. Well, I went out into this box and there's a few other people out there with me that I don't know. And I jumped up and down as hard as I could because I had complete faith that no structural engineer in their right mind is not going to design this thing with a factor of safety so big we could get We could all go in there and jump if you want to do it with me. It's not coming off the building. I believe that. It affects the way I live. The people in there with me, they didn't believe that. They got out. And they weren't too happy with me. And so, I mean, that's just a small example of how what you believe affects the way you live. If I didn't believe that thing would hold me, I wouldn't even go in it. And I watched people. They would do this. (laughs) Thinking that if it started to fall, they could jump back into the building. No problem. You know? They were, they were working on their belief. You know, By the time they went to the third one or the fourth one, they walked out with more confidence. And I think it's the same way for us. By the time we read a passage for the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time, the sixth time, we have a whole lot more confidence. We're starting to understand what it's about. We're starting to understand how it fits into the bigger picture of Scripture. We need to build that confidence through experience with Scripture. And there's really no other way to do it. And I think that right living versus right believing You guys all know that because it affects whether or not you decide to, you know, do a certain maneuver when you're driving or whether or not you're going to take drugs or whether or not you're going to do any other risky behavior. It often comes down to what you believe. Do I believe I'm going to get caught or not? I mean, what you believe affects how you live. I don't think there's any argument about that. So if we work on increasing our belief in God's word, it's going to change the way we live in a positive way. And lastly, um, Increasing your view of Scripture and God. The more you read and study the Scriptures, the more you see about God's glory and the truth of Scripture. Scripture reveals itself. Go to the next slide. This is the John Piper quote again. And I told you I like John Piper. I, I almost love John Piper. But, um, you know, you guys might not, and it's a little hard to understand because he sometimes writes in a weird way. But what he's saying here is he doesn't, He doesn't hold to his view of Scripture just because it's Scripture. He's been reading it. He's been studying it for 50 years in his case. And his love for Scripture grows more and more because of the beauty he sees in it, because of the glory he sees in it. He sees a bigger and more powerful and more amazing God every time he reads it. And he gives an example in one of his books that it's work to get to certain places in the Grand Canyon. It's work to get to the top of Mount Everest. Whatever place you want to go, Where it's work to get there. Once you get there and you are seeing what there is to see, you're beholding the glory that is the Grand Canyon, or you are beholding the view from the top of Everest where uh, only a few people have ever been, that's not work. That is easy. Enjoying the view is the easy part. The work is getting there. And so really the encouragement is we got to put in the work. We have to be reading and studying the Scriptures. It's the only way you're going to enjoy the view. You're not going to understand it if you don't. Scripture fits together in this big, long, amazing book. And I am learning more every single time I, I read it, I study it, every time I take a class, every time I have to prepare for a sermon. Um, and you know, it gives me hope that John Piper, who's been studying it more Uh, mm. he's been studying harder than I have and he's been studying for a lot longer than I have and he still finds joy and he's still learning new things we're going to spend eternity in heaven learning about God and we're never going to know everything there is to know that will blow your mind so don't think about it too long but what is your view of scripture that's my question for you we see John Piper's view what is your view of scripture is your view aligned with Cornerstone's view Maybe it does. Maybe not yet. Maybe you want to think about it. Do you have a love for Scripture? Do you have a need to be in Scripture? And I want to leave you with this one thought, is that Scripture is full of hard verses. Okay? And you can't love Scripture without loving those hard verses. So, did Jesus really mean it when he said, when somebody slaps you on the left cheek, you give them your right cheek? I know we all want to punch them back. But that's not what Scripture says. Um, you know, Scripture says that, you know, premarital sex is wrong. So if you're a young person, that's not what your culture is telling you. But is the Bible infallible? Or is it no longer applicable in our culture? I mean, there are a lot of hard teachings in Scripture. And you could preach sermons on every one of them. But the, my point is that you need to believe those too. So when we say we believe the entirety of the Bible, The entirety of the Bible is authoritative and that it is useful and that it is for our lives. We mean the entirety of the Bible. That's why it's in there. So please close with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Scriptures. They are a tremendous gift to us. We thank you for providing them to us. We would be really lost without them. Help us not to always be looking for more. Help us not to be wondering, when is God going to speak to me? When is God going to tell me this one thing? When is God going to reveal this? But let us put in the work. Let us read the Scriptures and see if it gets revealed to us. Lord, we we love you, and we want to love you more, and we need to read the Scriptures to do that. So give us that desire. Ignite that fire within us, we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we sing our final song. And I chose to close with your beautiful because I think it really goes along with this quote from Piper about seeing the beauty of Scriptures in everything, from the Grand Canyon to the sunrise to the whole story of Scripture and the fact that Jesus is coming back to save us.